This is Gary. I'm Shangar. And you're listening to The Bar. Alright, today we have with us a very special guest, Ayman from Sukarelawan. How are you? How am I? Wow, it's quite an honor to be here. You know, I've been following the podcast ever since I met Gary. And I've been loving your content so far. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. And thank you so much, Shanga and Gary, for having me here. No problem. Thanks uh, for coming on board. Pleasure to have you. Tell us a bit about yourself. My name is Ayman. I'm a 24-year-old advocate or solicitor of the High Court from Malaya. I got called on October 22nd, 2021. So that was the day that I was forever immortalized as a slave of the judicial system of Malaysia. Besides that, as why I'm here, I'm also the head of finance of Sukarela Society, an upcoming social enterprise. Our main goal is to bridge the gap between social activism and the youth in Malaysia. We were founded in September of 2020, so almost a year old, yeah. Very recent, but congratulations for being called to the bar. And Thank you. Congratulations for also being called to this bar. To the bar, you yeah, know, bar exactly. Squared, you know? uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Mm. So Sukarela One started September 2020, you said. So why did it start? Our founders is two wonderful ladies, Sherry Amin and Charlene Rahim. So the thing is, Sherry and Charlene, they've been long-time friends and they've always been involved in charity work with their family, right? I guess one day they woke up from bed and decided, you know what, we have reach, we have supporting cast that can help us, let's start something. So they started their applications, they sent out, okay, who would like to join the team? And I was one of the few who, full disclosure at the time, just finished law school. So I was like, you know what, instead of staying home, you know, being a useless member of society, why don't I stay home, be a useless member of society with Zuccarello one? So <laughs> I joined and ever since then, I've been with them. Okay, and you said they had the reach. So are they like influencers? The thing is, I don't like consider my founders as influencers. I would just like to consider them well-liked because I know for a fact that both of them don't exactly do influencer jobs. In fact, Sherry is a recent graduate from politics and international relations from the UK and Charlene is pursuing a medical degree. I don't want to influence people to call them influencers because I think that's not their main goal in life. It just happens to be that well-liked, they have nice posts and people like to follow their program. But why start an NGO? Weren't there other things you could do when you're well-liked? I mean, I can't speak on their behalf, you know, because I myself only met them for the first time when I joined the organization. But I guess when you're young, right? Because you know, they're, they're in the early 20s just like myself. When you're young and then you are bright-eyed and hopeful, you want to leave a lasting impact. I guess you could do something like initiatives. For example, like I'm wearing a cap right now and on my cap, you will notice a small pin. Okay, this small pin, clay pin, is created by an initiative on Instagram called Happy Pins, right? H-E-P-P-I-P-I-N-S. So this initiative was founded by two brothers and, sis- like, uh, brothers and sister who just wanted to use their creative capabilities to help raise money. And, you know, they did it through a, a platform. Lah. So I guess why they went the Sukha Relevant direction is because they also wanted to create an everlasting impact. Now, I'm not saying that initiatives like Happy Pins is not everlasting. I'm just saying that initiatives like Happy Pins are initiative-based, meaning like per charity, per program, they will use their talents and they will raise money. But Sukarela one, they wanted to, like I said earlier, bridge the gap between social activism and volunteers from the youths more than just raising money. If you go to our Instagram, you know, Sukarela Society, you would notice that we do a multitude of different things. Our first program was to the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. We just had a day with the kids. And then also recently, in fact, this is how I met Gary, is when we did our Transcend Neighbours initiative where we went down to the streets and helped feed our street friends. What were your expectations going into it? Uh, going to Sukarela one, 
one, like I said, you know, being completely honest and blunt, I just needed something to do at the time. And to be fair, like I just felt like going into this, I'm just gonna do my job, help as much people as I can, and then just go back, lah. But why now? Like, was it something that sparked your inspiration that you're like, this is the right time for me, right here, right now? I guess you could also consider this a transitional phase in my life. Like I was about to transition from being a university student to an actual working adult. So what most people would say is that okay lah, when you transition from student to adult, it means you're adulting, right? The way I saw it, it was like okay. What I lived as a student, I cannot bring that life back into being a working adult. So I just felt like joining an organization at my age at the time was perfect because you have all the energy, you have all the aspirations. You know, life hasn't crushed your dreams yet. You know, that happens when you're thirty. So I just felt that it was right for me. Okay. I had the energy, I had the resources. Would you, would you say social work is a young person's game as opposed to someone maybe like our parents' generation? I would say it depends on its intentions because I've had the opportunity to work with the youth in their social work, and I've also seen you know the older generation in their works, and it's very different. Like my stepdad, he was more in the sense that of just buying stuff every raya, right? He and his friends would contribute, he would spend out their money, that they hard work and money, and they would just give it to kids who deserved it more. I feel like the older generation they prefer that. Because that's all they knew. And do you think it's a mentality thing? Like you know, old versus the young. It's just the way of life, the way our upbringing, our perception on, I guess, the world and the people out there. Mm, I think I would agree. It is an upbringing thing. It's a cultural thing because we have to understand that you know, back when they were young, they didn't have these organizations who actually cared. The only people who cared about them were people who would actually just take an effort to care. You know, being a young men's game right now or a young women's game, of course, we're all inclusive. Now, in our day and age, we can reach out to people instead, which is what you know, Sukarnawan has done pretty well. Like our latest project, Kiba, in which we, you know, actually went to the houses of these uh, recipients, these contributors who needed help. You know, we reached out to them. They didn't reach out to us. You spoke about intentions. What are the priorities for Sukarnawan and for yourself personally? I'll start with Sukarela one. I guess our priorities and our intentions is just we need to just bridge the gap. I feel like that's our biggest trouble or our biggest goal is that we need to bridge the gap that there has to be a healthy and safe, stable platform for the youth to give back to society. Because I've heard so many experiences from my friends who joined NGOs when they were in uni. They didn't like it. In fact, they didn't like it so much because of how maybe the organization was ran. They just didn't want to do charity work anymore. They felt it was a vanity project or they. Felt that it was just all talk, you know, cloud, all that stuff. So I think our intentions is just to be a genuine platform for social activism and the youth. You spoke about vanity project, which is very interesting. Mm. Do you feel, to a certain extent, a lot of what you are doing like is that to feed that vanity side? I can say pretty confidently that at Sukarnawan, we are not part of that vanity project. You know, I don't think that is accurate for what Sukarnawan does. Even though that is probably the common misconception people have for any NGO, it's a vanity project. I mean, if I could show you how much work we put in into making sure that whatever we do is legit and genuine, we do proper documentations, receipts, financial reports, after action reports. We want to really do it well. We want to be legitimate. I mean, we registered with SSM. We did everything. We sent in our relevant documents. We have a proper bank account and everything. We want it to be legit because we don't want people to say it's a vanity project because it's very easy to misconceive, especially since members are well-liked founders, you know, and they have their own haters or whatnot. All we can do is just do the best that we can, as legitimate as we can, as transparent as we can, so that at the end of the day, Sukarnawan is legit. 
Speaking about legitimacy, do you think that's a big deal, especially in the NGO social enterprise world these days? I think it's a pretty big deal in my personal opinion because it's very easy for you to just create a logo, open an Instagram account and just say that, hey, I'm an NGO. But how are they registered with ROS? But do they? does that detract from especially a lot of amazing people out there who might be doing this for like, say, maybe a decade, two decades. Mm. They don't have a logo, they're not registered. Does it make it any lesser that they don't have that legitimacy? I think it would be pretty ass for me to say like it makes it lesser just because they spent all these years and then because they don't have these legitimate things that it invalidates their efforts. No, I don't agree with that. But I will say that I guess in this day and age where image is everything, portrayal is everything, marketing is everything, being legit is what validates you, I feel, or validates your movement. And so to that point of the argument, does it mean that if I have money and some kind of social presence that it equals effective work okay because it could be portrayed essentially like mm-hmm, that right i've mm-hmm. seen so many groups on their social media it looks amazing but until you go on the ground and you realize oh actually it's just it's a lot of fluff right mm. i mean i believe the perspective that is just from that one individual right it's just that one individual with a good intentions he's like i have the money i have the capabilities i'm gonna just use it in the right way but in that thought right I would say all this fluff and all this, it's all just, uh, like I said, a vanity project. Again, maybe that's where the idea of Sukarela came about. Because when you do it through a proper organization who actually takes care of their legitimacy, that's how you know, okay, legal term, that's where you create a paper trail. That's where you know that you can be accountable because you now you're not just giving your money away and you're just seeing how it's done or you just hire a graphic designer to make a poster. With a proper organization, you actually have your steps taken, you see the documentations of the work. So to answer that question, I would say that no, it doesn't invalidate a person, even if he doesn't do it to an organization. If he just has good intentions, he's been doing it for 10 plus years. But I think it would do the person good by affiliating himself with an actual legitimate organization. It would just be, you know, if he can be better, why not? So there's been several projects now mm. that you've overseen. It looks like you've assisted the homeless community Urban Poor mm. for your Kibar project. Did you say Cancer Kids as well? Yes, earlier? Cancer Kids as well. How's the sustainability of it though? Very good question. Okay. The sustainability is entirely depending on our planning. For example, let's take the National Cancer Society project, which is our first project. So going into that, we thought, okay, this is our introduction project. All the capital we put up is capital we're not going to get back. Not only because we don't want it to be sustainable, but because this is where we introduce ourselves. So we have to take that hit. And then moving on, we discussed, okay, future projects need to be projects that if it's either low model or with a model, it needs to be done in a very sustainable way. So then we move forward to our next project, which is where we crowdfunded money for the people in Sempurna Sabah. So one of the things we thought about, okay, how do we make this sustainable? How do we make it legit? We're like, okay, fine. We can't just ask people to trust us. We don't have a bank account yet at the time. So like, we can't ask people to transfer money to us. That will look very shady and of course unsustainable because if that one event, we just tell one person, okay, uh, donate to us. Okay, fine, we'll donate. Give me your bank account. You give some random number. You give some random guy's name. Then I'm going to trust you again. But okay. you know, to Shanga's question about sustainability, sustainability is really both sides, isn't it? It's not just about the organization saying sustainable in terms of cash flow. It's also the sustainability of the community, right? Mm. Because I, I, I realize the word we keep using is projects. And in my head, projects feels like it's a one-off. It has an expiry date. It has a timeline. Mm. Um, but I guess to Shanga's question, sustainability in the sense of are we making a sustainable impact within the oh, community okay. you're reaching out to? Okay. See, it's tough for me to answer that question because we're so new, right? And most of our projects are quite targeted. Like you said, urban poor, the homeless, uh, cancer kids, right? Our reach is 
probably still not at the level that we would like for it to be a sustainable impact that will continue on, right? But at the same time, I think that's something that entirely depends on what you're fighting for and what initiative you're trying to help. For example, homelessness, right? It's an issue that's been going on for years. There are dozens of organizations who feed the homeless. But that raises the question, if there's so many people doing it, why is it still not being solved? So maybe the next step moving forward would be to institutional reform, mm-hmm. right? The Destitute Persons Act, all that stuff. Oh, I'm not going to get into law terms right now. Mm-hmm. But that is that outlet that you could take. And that is an outlet that Sukhara Roland does consider as well. So I would believe that sustainability depends on the issue you want to tackle. You see what's going on right now and you see what's not been done before. One year in, mm. you know, it's been a year mm. that Sukhara Roland started and you've been part of it. Mm-hmm. What has not met your expectations? What turned out to be a lot different than the reality that you had in mind of how things would be? The thing about me is, I have this, I'll say, I won't say a mantra, but it's a mindset where it's like, expect the worst, hope for the best. So for me, if anything in between happens, I'm okay. If the best happens, great. If the worst happens, okay lah, you knew this was coming. So with Sukarelawan, after a whole year, the only thing that I would say that was not up to what I expected was probably just to how much work actually goes into it. You know, like I was very surprised by how much detail is needed because I really thought that I could just, you know, spend some hours here, spend some hours there. You know, I wouldn't know, right? I didn't actually join the organization. I would just spend some hours here, spend some hours there, go to work. And let me tell you, man, being a head of finance and being a pupil, which is like on the way, it's not the healthiest thing. You know, there were times where I had my security meetings in my law firm, in the conference room, going through agreements while they were discussing. But at the same time, that part was probably not up to my expectations. I really thought that I could just expand just a little bit of time and then go on with my life. But then again, I wouldn't regret, I don't regret a single moment of it. My final question before we go into your final thoughts here, to sum up everything you said, do you think the ends justify the means or rather the process of what we do justifies the means? I, I'm a f- full believer of the process. I mean, living in Malaysia, the whole idea of the ends justify the means has been propagated forever. Now in woke culture and Twitter and Instagram, you know, as much as these are very toxic platforms, to a degree, they show the process. So I generally believe that the whole idea of the ends justify the means would never hold a candle to having a proper process. Having a proper process also means that you also would learn the valuable lessons to make the next process very good. Like, if I could tell you from our experiences in Sakarola now, it will only get better and better from when we first started. One year in, if there's any valuable lesson you would like to give to someone who has intentions of starting their own NGO, mm-hmm. what would it be? I must say this. It's very important to really know your teammate and your members because I'm not going to lie here and tell you that Sukarela One has been smooth sailing since the start you know there are growing pains for any organisation but if you're trying to start an organisation that is meant to help charity too you know at the service of others you really need to make sure that the people who join are willing to take that sacrifice or are willing to actually do the work like I said you know I was being a lawyer 9 to 6 and then a head of finance next 6 to 12 hours right 6 to 12 6 to midnight I was willing to do it and when you're willing to do it work goes but then there are some people who don't feel the same there are some people who feel like they can only do their weekends I will only do my work on weekends it's not possible so if there's any advice I could give to anyone who wants to start something 
really, really vet your teammates. Really, really make sure they understand that this is not going to be a walk in the park. When you're at the service of others, you have to put in the work. I mean, isn't that why politicians get paid so much? Right? You would think that, why else they get paid 40k? You know why? Because they're at the service of others. And that's a lot of work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Shanga. Thank you, Until Gary, next for having time. me. Thank you. So earlier we heard from Ayman from Sukarel One about the challenges of starting an NGO. What happens after that? How about someone who has been running an NGO for years? To discuss about this, we have Swilin from Picha Eat, an organization that's been around for seven years now to assist refugees. Swilin, tell us a bit about yourself. <laughs> Hi everyone, my name is Swilin. My background is in accounting. That's what I studied previously. And right after that, I worked a little bit in accounting or in the finance sector. And then uh, I started Pichait, which is a F&B social enterprise that helps refugees in Malaysia or specifically in KL. That's roughly about me. It was Picha Project yeah, that started yeah. in 2016. Yeah, that's right. Was it meant to be an NGO or a social enterprise? I think when we first started, we had a little bit of knowledge in social enterprise. So when me and my partners, when we are in universities, we were actually sort of involved in the NGO space. So when we started the Picha Project at that time, we knew that we wanted to turn it into a social enterprise just because of the sustainability part of it where we know that it is important because without sustaining it, we cannot run, right? And when we first started Pichais, we decided that it should be a SE direction. And I guess the rebranding really speaks to that sustainability, doesn't it? Because mm, yeah. a project seems short-term, whereas yeah. something like Picha Eats seems something more credible, more established yeah. in that sense. Yeah, actually that's the point why we did the rebranding at the first Do you know place. I get all your newsletters? Like I read it, <laughs> I think almost weekly, I think. On, on that's good. On the promotions and what you guys Yay. are doing. Your recent one is with Ding, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ding. For the benefit of the listeners, do you mind sharing the differences between an NGO and a social enterprise? Yeah. So based on my understanding, I think working in the social enterprise scene and NGO space for a while, a social enterprise is a business where we run, where our business model is actually an impact business model where it has its business side and also the social side of things. But I think the main goal of a social enterprise is to drive the impact side. However, on the NGO side is where there's no business element or there's no sort of a profit or a money-making side, but more on the impact side only. Okay, and tying back to sustainability, SEs are meant to be self-sustainable yeah. in generating yeah. its own profit mm-hmm. as opposed to an NGO that relies on funding and sponsorship. Yeah. Are there any other difference between these two? I think how you market it, probably there are some differences. I think a social enterprise probably would be focusing more towards the marketing side, the value what the customer can get. But I think on the NGO side, probably is more towards you know, the community side, the beneficiaries. Uh, I'm not saying that SE side, there's no elements of the community or the beneficiary side. But I think, um, I think there needs to be a balance, a certain fine balance between both. Okay. Yeah. And when you yeah. started Picha Project in 2016, like you said, you came from accounting background. Why did you make the switch? What were yeah. you looking for starting an SE or an NGO? To be honest, like, you know, in the beginning, like what Gary mentioned, you know, we transitioned from the Picha Project to Picha Eats. At first, when we call ourselves the Picha Project, it's because 
we didn't really know what to name and we didn't know that if this would work or whether this would be just a project because to be honest that's how we first started which is just you know calling our friends in uni and getting them to buy or more like forcing them to buy the meal so it's more like a weekly kind of thing uh, I think we call it like giving Wednesday or something like that back then why did you join the NGO well like from an accounting background yeah so at that time like I think in me there's like a lot of like you know why certain things happen and things like that and I think also because it is still a project right so in our perspective it's not a definite thing that we are going to do this so it's more like oh yeah let's just try it out let's test waters and things like that and for me at that time I know that a lot of people actually asked me like you know why did I make the switch and things like that but for me I, I felt that it wasn't really a switch it's more trying it out and and see how it goes and let's say if we fail or I fail then too bad let's go back to the corporate world so on that note I wanted to ask like since you started that journey six years ago has it been self-sustaining for you or did you have to look for other work in between so of course in the beginning of starting the Picha project it wasn't really self-sustaining but I was still okay. I mean, it's not like we eat like luxuriously every day and things like that. But then I think throughout the period, yes, it is self-sustainable. But of course, in between and things like that, we had, you know, grants from certain competitions that we joined and things like that. So that has been more like a driver to boost certain projects or like, for example, Ding or the ready-to-eat meal. And so does that fulfill like your basic needs, your, I guess, your career ambitions in that sense? Yeah, I would say yes. <laughs> For the benefits of our listeners, perhaps you should share what Picha itself does yeah. and probably from the start, like why was it called Picha and yeah. when Picha project was set up, what was the purpose of it? Yeah, so Picha is started in 2016. I mean, at that time, we wanted to you know register the company and things like that. Last time, it was Enterprise. So Picha is actually our first cook youngest son. So his name is actually Picha or that's what his mom actually call, calls him. So before Picha is, we were actually volunteering in the Refugee Learning Centre nearby our uni. And what happened is that, so me and my partners, we set up sort of like a NGO or organisation in the university itself to actually send volunteers from the uni to the Refugee Learning Centre. And at that time, after doing that for about one to two years, we realised that many of our kids started to drop out of school to actually work and earn an income for their own family. So like imagine like, you know, kids from 10 years old, 15 years old, they start to say, you know, I don't want to go to school. I want to go out. I need to go out and work for my family. So at that point, you know, we wanted to put the kids back to school. And that's why we thought, you know, since everybody can cook, the mom usually are at home to take care of the kids. Why not we get the mom to cook? And then through the income, we can put Picha and his friends back to school. So that's how we first started. What I'm hearing is like, so it wasn't a case where yeah. there was a Swilin, Suzanne and Kim who came out of uni and went like, okay, I want to make yeah. a difference to specifically towards the refugee community and then you mm-hmm. set it up. Yeah. It, it, it sounds more like a very coincidental coming together. Yeah. Was it all truly a coincidence that happened, that this happened that way? Or like, do you think there was a certain purpose within one of you that you were seeking out for mm-hmm. that led you to it. Yeah, yeah. I think to be honest, like like for me, how I look at it, yes, it is quite coincidental. Uh, but I know I do know, you know, my two other partners, they always have this in- intrinsic, uh, intrinsic value or things. They know that this is something that they want to do in the future. I think for me, if I were to say something about it, I would say that I'm the the outcast or the <laughs> uh, like you know someone or an individual who doesn't doesn't really know what they want to do I guess at that point um but but I think for me it's more just 
just just about exploring on you know what are the options um and and for me i think also is is good to have um sort of like a family support uh where where i i know that you know let's say if i feel this thing i can always just go back home and say hey mom take me back <laughs> i guess yeah okay and tell us about your experiences of running the ngo and uh, helping out this community itself how has that been like what did you not expect getting into it i think it's a very normal human thing to assume that you know let's say if you want to give something good and then the other party must accept it with a big heart or things like that but i don't think that's the case I think one thing that I've learned is to be able to connect with the people itself, the community itself. I think like for me, I feel like, you know, we don't really like to call our refugee family as like beneficiaries or anything to show there's a certain level because I do think that once there's a level there, the the dynamic will be different. I think people have to understand that it's more of a community where we're trying to bridge the gap between, you know, the rich and poor and it's not about, you know, me helping you, me, you know, giving this 10,000 check to you and then you have to accept it with bigger heart or greater heart whatever speaking about community you started with 10 families right have you grown since uh we started with one family okay, at first sorry. um then yeah we have grown i think now we have about 20 but then i think recently two of our families actually got resettled to one in Australia, I think, one in Australia and one in Amsterdam, which is really a great thing. So I think, to be honest, I feel like our, in Picha, the families, like, in terms of resettlement, I think they resettled quite fast, which is a good news. But of course, you know, for some of the longer families that has been with us, some of them are still with us. Yeah, so I think overall, collectively, since the beginning, I think we have impacted maybe about, 30 to 40 families. I mean, it's not big. Oh, no. Um, yeah, but yeah, still. Yeah, but I think for us, like, I mean, what we always value is always quality or deep impact. An impact that is very hard to quantify, but it's something that we see like, day in, day out. On the flip side of that, you, you know, you, you spoke about breaking barriers within communities. Yeah. Have you gotten pushback from the community over the years, whether on the refugee community or also, I guess, from the general public out there as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely there is some pushback. I think no matter what we do, there's always something that is wrong, it's not right. Uh, this is not something you should do. I think it's a very normal thing that people would say. And so would you say it's fair to say that you've had moments of being burnout, heartbreak, even maybe moments of feeling lost? Mm. How, do you, how do you deal with those moments? I think looking back, of course I can say that, oh yeah, these are some of the ways that I've sort of conquered the thing that happened uh, but I think first is to taking a break <laughs> yeah taking a break taking a break taking a short break taking a break uh, talk to someone I think recently I've encouraged like many people to also speak to a third person like a therapist also to you know get some insights or just learn learn about yourself and things like that and I think when when burn burnout comes take a deep breath talk to someone chill have a cup of coffee, get drunk or something. (laughs) (laughs) Was there ever a moment that you felt like maybe I just want to let this all go? I think there are moments like that, but I think at the end of the day, you know, once that is over, as in like once the short break, whether it's a cup of coffee or a beer or so, I think coming back to the vision or what we want to do, I think I can speak for myself. Like it can bring me back to, okay, these are the work that I need to do. Like let's get it going. One more question before I go back to Shanga. And I'm sure this happens, right? Mm. When you work in a team, no matter how big or small 
especially how long you've known each other? Have you had disagreements, particularly like in the direction you guys want to hit? Mm. And, and does that, I guess, take a toll mentally sometimes on your work dynamic? Mm. I think in any workspace, there are definitely, you know, disagreements, especially in terms of, you know, how do we work together? What are the directions? Uh, communication style, um, certain things that you believe, uh, values and things like that. Um, but I think at the end of the day, to look back at the the direction or the end goal that we want to reach. And I think in the process, it's all about, you know, just figure things out or trying to get into the middle ground on what is, you know, how can we work this thing together? Yeah, but I think at the end of the day also to be able to balance both work and personal. I mean, like work is work as in like, you know, whatever emotions that comes in work, like I think we shouldn't bring it on to the personal side um, and vice versa. Okay. You spoke about impact earlier and then you also mentioned that you were heavily criticised. What was a very common criticism that you received? Mm. The recent one that I can think of is that when I say community, it's more like not the refugees, but like people in general. I think they don't think that this is the best solution on what we are doing. So I think the criticism that came to say that, oh yeah, Picha should leave them alone because they don't need our help. But then I think there's no right or wrong. Like To be honest, like let's say, you know, if today Picha closed down, I do think that, you know, the families can actually survive because, I mean, they survive well to come here to, you know, feed their family, to actually teach their family or teach their children or ensuring their children are safe and things like that. I don't think they wouldn't survive Without us, I think they can survive. We are not forcing anyone to be part of it, but I think it's the same thing as I think like, you know, job opportunities or career-wise where different people have different passion. Uh, some are in cooking, some some is in sewing and so on. And I think that the chef that we have, they actually do really love, you know, serving their customers. Yeah. And I'm sure mm. you've tasted all the cuisines at mm. this point. Yeah. Honestly, have you gotten tired of the food you, you keep eating? <laughs> Honestly, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have a biasness towards yes. a specific yes, cuisine yes, that you like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like mainly the... Actually, it depends. I think it depends on mood, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. But generally, I love all the... Um, like from the Afghanistan, we have the Afghan mantu, the flatbread. Oh, I love the mantus. Yeah. yeah, I love it so much. Um, And then, you know, from the Middle East, the Palestine side, we have the chicken mandi, the mandi rice. And then now recently, we also explore the Pakistani set, which is really, really good as well. So I would say it's like a different cuisine. Yeah, and trying to travel around the, the world sort of experience sometimes. You said when you got criticisms, they asked if, were you really helping? Yeah. Let's dive into that. Yeah. Why do they ask you that? And this is a very common thing in the NGO world at the end of the day, yeah. and especially social enterprises, that target yeah. specific community and sell either food or arts and crafts, you know, things that are made by the community and selling it to the rest of people and then taking a portion out of it and giving them yeah. the rest, right? Yeah. Yeah, what's yeah. your take on that? I think at the end of the day, people need to realize that I think everyone needs to survive, right? I mean, I, I cannot really speak on the behalf of the NGO side, but let's say if I today, if I were to run an NGO, you know, every single day I have to worry about, you know, money, uh, where can I get my next, you know, one million, where can I get my next this and that. And I think to think about that, like, I think it it is very stressful. I think it's a struggle to be able to balance both 
impact and also the business side. And I also do know that people cannot comprehend what is a social enterprise because it's a mixture of both. I think I've heard a lot, you know, people say if you want to do good, just go to the NGO space. If you want to uh, make money, just go to the business side. I mean, in my point of view, why not both? I mean, it's not that it's not possible. It's possible to do it. So I think it's possible to incorporate, you know, certain elements of social into it. You know, maybe hiring, I don't know, the refugees or maybe, I don't know, like incorporate in their supply chain side. So I think it's possible. It's just, I think, how you look at it. To me, it's just perspective. Yeah. To all the little Swilins, little Kims and little Suzannes listening to this, what's one advice you would like to give to them if they would like to venture and start an NGO or a social enterprise? Mm, I think first... um, Maybe you can come and talk to me. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, but that's a good one though. It's, it's always speak to people who have walked that path yeah. before you, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think definitely, you know, speaking to people who have done it before, I wouldn't say I've done everything, but then I would say it helped. I think at my point in my life now, I still, you know, talk to different people, uh, different mentors, advisors, and they do give, you know, great advisors because the truth is that they do eat more salt than me and they do know a lot more things than me I think that's one you know talk to people but I think second thing is to have that first step out to say that okay this is possible let's try it I think it's always hard for people to make something possible because you know we are always very caught up in our mind or can I do this can I not do this what if I do this and I fail I think we are just too caught up in that but I think once you know the first step is out I think that is a big great or big step so just, just do it, yeah. <laughs> Suilin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> On that note, that's all the time we have for this episode. Until next time, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.